certainly wonderful to be here with you this morning. Uh, song service has been extremely uplifting, encouraging. <clears throat> Excuse me. For those of you that are visiting with us, we're certainly thankful for your presence and we're blessed by your presence here today. I hope the things that I present to you are beneficial, that they're edifying for you, and that they'll help you some way in your relationship with God and Christ. And we continue looking in the book of Romans, and we're up to Romans chapter 11. And that question becomes, what about Israel? And before we begin to look in Romans chapter 11, we're going to go back to our picture that we've looked at throughout the study of Romans. Our watch here and, and all the gears that are comprised in a watch and those gears function together for a specific purpose to tell time. And if one of these gears is not functioning properly, <clears throat> I don't know what's going on in my throat all of a sudden. Yeah, can you give me some water? <laughs> one of those gears is not functioning properly, then time cannot be told on the watch or on the clock or whatever the case is. And so we look at our salvation in much the same way. All of these gears function together for a specific purpose, and that purpose is our salvation. And as we go through Romans, we don't talk about all of these gears individually every time that we may talk about one or another, and most times it's just for the purpose that we don't have time to talk about them each and every service, but understanding that they all work together for the accomplishment of our salvation. Where this kind of breaks down a little bit is some of these gears function on our behalf, and they do fail because we are humans and we do fail, and some of these gears function on the behalf of God, and those gears, therefore, never fail. So, as we remember our salvation and how all of these things work together, we look at our overlooking picture, big picture of what Romans is about. And we talk about the five S's of Romans, sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. And we're in this section on sovereignty this morning. <clears throat> we're concluding our section on sovereignty this morning. And with the point that we're at, and we kind of review, high-level review of where we are in Romans chapter, Paul, chapter 1, Paul begins there talking about everything points to Christ. And he says there that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto the salvation unto the Jews and Gentiles. And this righteousness has been revealed through God. In chapter 2, he talks about not presuming the righteousness or the kindness and the forbearance and patience of God, that it was meant for a purpose to, to lead to repentance. In Romans chapter 3, he asked that question there, is God the, Jew, the God of the Jews alone? And the answer was no, he was the God of the Jews and the Gentiles both alike. And he begins ushering this idea in that the Jews and the Gentiles would be both heirs of God's promises. And he brings that to fruition by talking about the Old Testament law, how it showed it, how the prophet showed it, how, the, how David showed it, how the Psalms proved to those points. At the, and then in chapter 4, he brings in Abraham, the father of their faith, and how that Abraham even proved it. And he talks about how the righteousness was imputed to Abraham because of his faith. At the end of chapter 4, he brings Christ back into the picture. And he talks about Christ in chapter 5. And that sin that Adam ushered in, and that Adam was the one who changed the world through his sin, but Christ would change the world 
through grace. In chapter 6, he then asks that very important question, should we sin more that grace may abound? And his, the answer was no. And obviously it was no because he calls their baptism to memory. And he says, because of your baptism, you were resurrected to a new life. You crucified the old man just as Christ was resurrected to a new life. He continues on to talk about that the, we are slaves. We either slaves to righteousness and obedience or we're slaves to sin. In Romans chapter 7, and he therefore talks, reminds them that they are no longer under the bondage of the law and that we are all engaged in a daily battle against sin. And Paul opens up and gives us this picture of a very personal battle that he has with sin. And he talks about those things that he knows that he ought not to do, but he still does them. And he makes that statement there, oh, wretched man that I am. And we get a very personal idea of what that battle of sin is that we still struggle with in our own personal lives today. In Romans chapter 8, he makes that statement that there's now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And what a powerful statement that is that our suffering does not mean that we are not his children. Our suffering does not mean that we are part or not a part of him. <clears throat> and we can know this, that we have those blessings because God would not even spare his own son for our benefit. In chapter 9, he turns, on, turns to the sovereignty of God and that God is ultimately, we are ultimately on his ball. And who are we to question God? He makes the statement that, that God will show compassion upon whom he will show compassion. He'll have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. And he brings in this idea of a physical and spiritual Israel and how that everything would be ushered in. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And the promises coming through Jacob and the lineage of Jacob. In chapter 10, the Jews were trying to establish their own righteousness through the law apart from God, and everyone who believes, both Jews and Gentiles, will be saved, but that it was not, but it was Israel that didn't obey. And I want you to notice as you look at, there's a lot of stuff going on in this breakdown that we have, but highlighted in this green, the overall theme in the book of Romans, if you could say there, well, multiple overall themes in the book of Romans, but one of the greatest one is God's righteousness and all of the aspects of God's righteousness that we've seen highlighted throughout each one of these chapters. So as we turn to Romans chapter 11, before we do that, I want us to be reminded of the promises that God made to Abraham, because this is very important as we're looking at this question about what about, the, what about Israel. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham out of the land of Ur and made him three promises that he would make him a great name, a great nation, and that through him all families of the earth would be blessed. Now, later on in Genesis chapter 15, he consecrates this covenant that he makes with him. And the way he does this, he has Abraham sacrifice some animals and he splits them in two and he puts each half of the animal on one side. And the way that this worked, when you look in passages such as Jeremiah, when a, a covenant like this was made, both parties in the covenant would pass between the animals, signifying that if any of, either of the parties uh, stepped outside of the covenant or didn't uphold their part, they would be represented as if they were like these dead animals. But Abraham never has the opportunity to pass through between the animals. He, the Bible says that God caused a deep sleep to fall over, fall over him, and it would be God that would pass through the animals on his own, representing that it was God that gave the promise, 
that God that made the covenant, that he sealed the covenant, and that the covenant was on God alone. That God was the guarantor and Abraham was the benefactor of these promises and Abraham not walking through that and God alone represented that. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, it says there that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him the righteousness. And I want us to appreciate the gravity of that one passage in the whole landscape of the Bible. And in the New Testament alone, Paul quotes this passage many times. He quotes it twice in the book of Romans, in Galatians chapter 3. James quotes it in Galatians chapter 2. So that faith of Abraham that's referenced many times throughout the New Testament is what they continually pointed to, which is very important in our study in the book of Romans, especially in Romans chapter 11, as we answer this question, what about Israel? He begins, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Paul brings up four answers to show that God has not gone back on those promises in Genesis chapter 12. And the first of those answers is Paul himself. He says, for I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. So Paul first says, well, look at me. I myself am a descendant of Abraham. He hasn't rejected Israel. He hasn't rejected his people. He hasn't rejected those promises or gone back on those promises because here I am. And if you take it even one step further and you look at the other apostles that were descendants of Abraham, they were all a part of the promise as well. The second answer what was what we'll call the election answer. He says there in verse 2 that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And in the book of Romans... These words like for new, election, remnant, they're very mysterious words for some reason, and they're lifted out of their context many times today to use to teach things that really aren't true, to make it sound mysterious and what it is, but when you leave them in their proper context, it makes complete sense as to what God's trying to teach. Back in Romans chapter 9, he used, gave us a couple examples. He talked about Abraham, that Abraham had two sons, Ishmael, the older son, and Isaac, the younger son. The blessings of the promise would normally have come from the older son, but they came through Isaac because that's what God said they would come. Isaac then would have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older son, but the blessings once again would come through Jacob and not Esau. Jacob was the, was the one the promise would come through. And the true Israelites that God foreknew would be those that descend from Abraham, not in a physical lineage, but those who embrace the faith of Abraham. If you'll remember in Genesis chapter, or uh, Romans chapter 9, she was told the older, older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau I hated. And the first statement is God talking to Rebekah and telling her this statement, but the second one is not God talking to Rebekah. The second verse, 13, it is written, Jacob, I have loved, and eat, but Esau I have hated, was said all the way in the book of Malachi. So essentially the Old Testament is bookended with these two statements made about Jacob and Esau, and that's very important that we remember this fact that God was going to usher in his promises through Jacob, and this differentiation between a physical and a spiritual Israel begins, begins to come a lot to light. And the third answer in this response was Elijah. God, Paul refers to Elijah as Elijah was on a mountaintop in 1 Kings. He was complaining to God. He talks about that 
They had thrown down all their altars, killed all the prophets with the sword. And he says, I'm the only one that's left. And God tells him, he says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all knees that have not bowed to Baal. And Paul quotes this. And in the same way, what Paul was saying is that God had re- re- preserved a remnant of his people that would be a part of this blessing. And the fourth answer, Paul uses what we would call the grace answer. There is a remnant chosen by grace. And unfortunately, this passage is once again lifted out of its proper context and used that God individually selects people and chooses people by his grace to save them. And that's not at all what Paul was saying. When he's talking about this remnant by grace, he's talking about the plan that God had in place, the plan which was by His grace that God had a purpose, and because it was by His grace, because it was by His word, and because He had promised it, He must fulfill it. The problem was, is that Israel had failed to obtain their place as the remnant. The same thing that is said at the the end of Romans chapter 10 is now being said at the beginning of Romans chapter 11. So what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And this is, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 29. Those that had failed God didn't do so because they had been hardened, they failed, or excuse me, they were, they were being hardened because they had failed God. And it fits the analogy that Paul uses in Romans chapter 9 perfectly. In Romans chapter 9, he talks about unto Pharaoh, even though, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will harden." Rather than immediate judgment that is oftentimes that God can dole out, God allows people time to repent. He allowed Pharaoh time to repent. He allowed Israel time to repent. When you go back to the beginning of Romans chapter 2, that's exactly what Paul was talking about, not taking for granted of the patience and the forbearance of God, that this time was supposed to be a time for you to remember God for who he was and a time for you to repent. And they chose not to do that. And in not doing so, Pharaoh and Israel did the exact same thing. Their hearts would be hardened. David said the same thing in Psalms chapter 69. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block. When he's talking about the table there, he's not talking about a physical table. He's talking about the blessings. The table represents the blessings that they were given to him. And he says, let those things become a trap or a snare for them because they took God's blessings for granted. Specifically, what David was talking about is they took those blessings for granted, not or just because of the fact that they were physically of the lineage of Abraham. And they were taking this wonderful relationship they had with God, and he says, let those things be a trap, those blessings that you've given them be a trap. And there's personal application here that I think each and every one of us can take from this. To not take the grace of God for granted. The grace of forgiveness we sometimes treat it as common. 
We pray to God and we simply say, forgive us of our sins. We don't ask for wisdom. We don't ask for guidance so that we not, might avoid temptation and overcome temptation. We just continue sinning over and over again and just cast it before God and say, forgive us those transgressions. Instead of taking and, and taking for granted the grace that's been allotted to us and saying, grant me wisdom. Teach me to overcome these things. We lose our humility because we take our eyes off of the sacrifice and the cross that's been set before us. We get caught up in the, main, the mundane details of our lives every day, and we take our eyes off the sacrifice, we take our eyes off the cross, and we take for granted what has been done for us in our salvation. We become less dependent on God because we have so many material blessings in this world. And we look at those blessings and the possessions that we have, and we allow those things to distract us, and we forget about a long-term eternal perspective that we need to have in our dependence upon God. Do not take the grace of God for granted. That's exactly what Israel did, and that's exactly what Israel was being rebuked for. So the question comes, does Israel's failure mean that their fall is permanent with no hope of any way? And he says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Once, once again, he answers, by no, by no means. Israel's stumbling was not permanent. God used Israel's failure for a very specific purpose. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make them jealous. So there was a purpose. And I find this very interesting that God ushered in the Gentiles and he says specifically that it was to make them jealous. Could you see how that would work? How that all of this time you've had this preaching and this nation of people that came from the lineage of Abraham and they had all of these great blessings and all of a sudden... It's been turned to these people who they viewed as heathens, these Gentiles. And God has now said, I'm offering them a part of it just like you. And they become jealous. They become jealous, and God wanted them to point it back to them. In Luke chapter 14, Paul or Jesus tells a parable there where he talks about a man who's going to put a feast together, and he sends his servant out to invite various people to this feast. And they all begin to make excuses. One says, you know, I've bought land, and I, I need to go look at it. Another says, I've bought oxen, I need to go prove it. And the other one just simply says, hey, I'm married. I just married a new wife. I can't go. And this was the response of the master. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. So Christ was lining up this principle even while he was here on earth that not all Israel was going to be a part of this. But what he's trying to prove and show was that God always had a desire for and a determination to have a people for himself. In verse 12, we look at Paul says, Now if their trespasses, talking about Israel, mean riches for the world, and if their failure mean riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full 
inclusion mean? And Paul's saying that Israel's sin and failure led to the riches of the world. Then how much more when Israel fulfills God's demands? And what Paul is talking about here, he's contrasting failure and obedience. If Israel's disobedience brought riches, think about how much will occur when they accept and obey. And we need to go back to the beginning of this chapter and that very important question as he begins to... Uh, Romans chapter 11, with what about Israel? Has God rejected Israel? The problem wasn't God. The problem has never been God. The problem was the Jews. If they would simply accept this plan that God had set before them, that both Jews and Gentiles would be heirs of the same blessings, then they could have life as well. Paul uses two illustrations in verse 16 to drive home this point about holiness being available. He says in verse 16, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, <clears throat> the first illustration comes from the offering of first fruits. If the dough offer is offered of the first fruits, then the whole lump would be holy. If the root of the tree is holy, then the whole tree is holy. And reading a lot of commentaries on this, the, the modern idea of what the first fruits in the root is, is that that was Abraham. And I disagree with it. I'm, I'm not in any way saying I'm near as knowledgeable as many of these people that wrote commentaries or anything, but it just doesn't make sense. If the first fruits of the lump is Abraham, and if the root is Abraham, doesn't that fall into the very argument that the Jews were making? The mantra that they had been saying was, we're the descendants of Abraham. And if that's true, it's falling into that very line of argumentation. And they're just saying, well, yeah, Paul, you got it right. Abraham was the first, and he's where the holiness begins. And that's not what he's trying to say at all. So I submit to you this morning that the first fruits and the root is Christ. When you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep, in verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Christ is the first fruits. But if you go back to Isaiah chapter 53, it also shows us him being the root. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. <laughs> Therefore, those that are connected to Christ, not Abraham, are holy and part of this tree. And what Paul is doing is similar to what Jesus did when he spoke of himself. I want you to think about when Jesus spoke about the vine and the branches. Throughout the Old Testament, this reference to the vine and the branches, the reference to the vine was Israel. But in John chapter 15, what did Christ say? I am the vine and you are the branches. It is I that sustains life. It is I that supplies you with life. And without me, you will be cut off and cast away. So Paul is declaring that Christ is the one in which holiness comes from, that Christ is the root. 
that Christ is the firstfruits of the lump. Paul said in Romans chapter 9 and verse 6 that not all who descended from Israel were Israel. Now the definition of Israel is now taking shape. The olive tree represents Israel and Christ is the root of that tree. We continue reading in verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafting it among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, if you are remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Paul points that some of the branches were broken off. He didn't say all of them. He said some of them. And remember, 9 and verse 9 and 6, that, that not all of Israel was actual spiritual Israel. <clears throat> spiritual Israel. Some of the Jews did believe in Jesus. They believed that he was the Messiah. They cast off the Old Testament law and they began to follow after Christ and they would be what would be remain as the remnant that Paul has been talking about. You notice the word you in here and when he's talking in the, and that word is referencing the Gentiles. Although they weren't natural branches, he talks about them being a wild offshoot. They were grafted into the tree among Jewish Christians. And this is a, another summary of what the book of Romans is all about, that Jews and Gentiles alike are true Israel. The Gentiles must not be arrogant because they've been grafted into the tree. Verse 22, 22 brings us to a very powerful point. Note then the kindness and severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, he's talking to the Gentiles still, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. We cannot focus on the characteristics of God, one characteristic of God, and ignore another. We have to acknowledge his kindness in the same way we have to acknowledge his severity. And I want us to notice this warning in verse 22, God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, provided you continue in obedience, otherwise you too will be cut off. And I find it amazing that so many in modern Christianity go to passages like Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 11 to prove Calvinistic doctrines of unlimited atonement or perseverance of the saints where once saved, always saved, when he specifically says, if I'm willing to cast off and cut off those that were the natural branch, what do you think I'll do to you? I find that baffling, to be completely honest. That's a warning for you and I, as Gentiles, to take care of our responsibilities, to be obedient, to follow in the kindness of God, and follow after Christ. And verse 23, and, if it, and even they, now he's talking about the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in their own olive tree? So this is meant to be 
a promise, a moment of comfort to the Jews. Those that had been disobedient. This is to be a reminder to the Gentiles to not be arrogant. He says, we took an all, a wild olive tree and grafted it in. Do you not think that God can take that which is natural and bring it back in? Because surely He can. And I find it interesting because I've seen a lot of YouTube videos where people graft different shoots of different plants onto one another. And it's amazing how often it's talked about in the Scriptures and how that process works. And this one's fully laid out right before our eyes as the principle as far as a natural thing being grafted in to what it came from. And this is a moment for hope for the Jews in which they can come back to God. And therefore, there's no room for arrogance. There's no room for boasting for the Gentiles. For the Jews can save, receive the same blessings as the Gentiles. And this brings us to the next three verses, which are very controversial. When I was a young man, when I was in high school at Boys Ranch, I had a Sunday school class. And I remember specifically, I was either a junior or a senior, that year we were studying cults. For some odd reason, when I was at Boys Ranch, they were worried about cults a lot. I mean, we, we weren't allowed to watch Smurfs because it had to do with cults. We weren't allowed to watch Scooby-Doo. I mean, it was crazy. But I remember my teacher that year, who was the associate pastor, when he would pray, he would always say a prayer. And in that prayer, he had this specific thing that he said about Israel and that he was praying for Israel. And it wasn't a prayer in the manner in which Paul is talking about that you would think he would want the Gentiles to pray for Israel, that they would turn and submit themselves to Christ. It was a prayer for Israel in their current state, for their protection and everything else. And I asked one day, why, why the prayer for Because it confused me. Why the prayer for Israel? And he told me because Israel's God's chosen people. And with my limited knowledge then of the scriptures, that didn't make sense. I knew enough of the story of the Bible and God's plan that it was the Jews that murdered Christ. I knew enough about the stories that it was the Jews in Israel that denied Christ as the Messiah. Why? How could they be God's chosen people? And as I pressed him on it, I got in a little bit of trouble. And I'll, I'll admit, I, probably, I wasn't humble about it in any way. I guarantee you that. But I got in trouble about it, and I was pretty much shut down and told to shut up, so I shut up. Fast forward, you know, 30 years, the same thing is still being said. The same thing that Israel is still God's chosen people. You know, Trevor and I were talking about that, and you hear that statement all the time, pray for Israel, pray for Israel. Pray for, not to pray for them in the sense that they would recognize the things that are being taught in Romans chapter 11, that God is willing to graft them back into the tree, into the olive tree, not for that, but pray for them in their current state. And I loved how the response that his dad had about this when discussing that with other people, why pray for Israel alone? Why not pray for all nations to turn to God? But that's not the purpose of the prayer. For some odd reason, it's been turned into Israel is still God's chosen people, and they're on some level, in some weird way, we look at it, and I don't understand it, to be completely honest, 
But I understand how these verses in Romans chapter 11 get lifted out of their context to be used to point to that purpose. So we look in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Now, before we go and look at this mystery that he reveals, let's go to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That was the mystery that he revealed in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6. Now, Paul's revealed this numerous times throughout the book of Romans. I want you to read what he goes on to says in Romans chapter 11 and verse 25. This is the mystery. Brothers, a personal hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So, Paul says this is the mystery that he's revealing. A hardening has come upon Israel. This is not anything that's new. He's revealed this over and over again since about chapter 9. But notice that Paul speaks of the fullness of the Gentiles. Here's the way that God would save all Israel. The Jews received the offer of salvation through Jesus. Some accepted, but most were hardened and rejected the message. All Israel is saved because the Gentiles and the Jews who respond in the faith of Abraham will be saved. Paul is teaching that all Israel will be saved by the inclusion of both Jews and Gentiles. And this is where things get messed up a little bit in translating these verses. First and foremost, in verse 26, I think the first four words are oftentimes removed. And in this way, I think those are taken out. All Israel will be saved. That's the first problem. The second problem, do we answer the question, who is all Israel? Because most times when it's lifted out of its context, all Israel is representative of physical Israel. Hence the need to pray for Israel is what people oftentimes refer to. But who really is all Israel? What have we been talking about this entire time? Christ is the root. There's the natural branches. Some have been broken off. And then there is the unnatural branches, the wild olive offshoots that have been grafted in. The natural branches being the Jews, the wild olive offshoots being the Gentiles. And those were all Israel. All Israel is not physical Israel that we think about today. All Israel is both Jews and Gentiles. In that way, all Israel will be saved. This has nothing to do with physical Israel. This is to do with God's plan for you and I as Gentiles as well as the Jews. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
He will render to each one according to his works. Paul's addressing the Jews here and God's patience and kindness that he had had with them and them not taking for for granted the forbearance that he had for them. And it was supposed to lead them to repentance. Instead, it made their hearts more hard-hearted towards God. And therefore, he says, they were storing up wrath against themselves. Now, does this sound like an all Israel that God is going to save? Or does this sound like an Israel that has going to have wrath poured out on it, which God would pour out his wrath on Israel? If you go to AD, and AD 70, Jerusalem would be completely destroyed. God poured out his wrath on Israel for their not taking time to repent in God's patience and kindness and the deliverer of Jesus Christ as he was set before them. So pray for Israel, but pray for them that they submit to God and they submit to God's plan and accept Jesus as the one and all truly Messiah. In a very spectacular way, Paul has come full circle and defined Israel as Jews and Gentiles who have faith in Jesus Christ. They have put to death the old self by being united with Christ in baptism, Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. They believe with their heart and they confess with their mouths that He is Lord, Romans 10 and 10. In verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. The terms they are talking about the Jews. Unfortunately, the Jews at that time were the enemies of the gospel. They were persecuting the Christians and they were causing grievous problems. But even though they were enemies of the gospel, God still wanted them to be saved and not have the door closed on the Jews outright. And he says they're beloved for their sake, for their forefathers. Paul gives them an important reminder. He goes on to say, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, you may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to, do, to disobedience, that we may, He may have mercy on all. And this important reminder, don't forget about the state that you were in at one point that you were outside, that you were sinners, that you had no part in this lot, that you had no part in this gospel, that you are no part in this plan and the blessings, but now you do. And you need to be reminded that they are now on the outside and you need to look on that with a proper perspective and be humble Paul states that one more time that it is hope of God that the Gentiles would receive the mercy. And verse 32 sums it all up. For God has consigned all to disobedience. This, this sentence reminds us what he talked about back in Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. And notice that it is not God's purpose. It is not His plan or His intent to have wrath upon everybody. Then Paul thrusts in that everyone whom calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. And that's what this is all about. 
Jews and Gentiles alike. At this point, Paul breaks into, it's kind of odd, he breaks into this praising of God when he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And I say it's a bit odd because Paul's been going through this very logical process and then abruptly comes in and immediately starts praising God. And it's not out of context. And it's, if you think about it, it's perfectly logical that he gets to this conclusion. I want you to think about the complexity of God's plan. God creates humans knowing that they would sin. Then rather than sending a sacrifice to deal with their sins immediately, God wants the world to learn the power and the gravity of sin. God creates the nation of Israel through Abraham. But this nation who was supposed to be representatives of God and represent all of the great things that God did, unfortunately winds up being more terrible in many instances than the other heathen nations that were surrounding it. God must treat Israel like the rest of the nations bringing severe judgment. At the right terms and at the right time in the terms of iniquity, And the readiness of the world, God sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world. And that's a summation of what God's plan was. And that was a very complex plan whenever you think about it. And Paul is acknowledging all of this in Romans chapter 11. And then he goes, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom of God. Paul steps back for one moment, realizing all of the things that he's been talking about, and this is the end of all of this discussion about the Jews and the Gentiles, and he pauses for just a minute, and he goes, we need to respect, we need to revere the wisdom of God. He quotes Isaiah chapter 40, and in in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 14, it says, whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? It wasn't mankind. There's nothing that we can offer to God. He also quotes Job. If you remember in the book of Job, verse, uh, chapters uh, about 38 through 41, Job in his suffering feels like God's being unjust and he demands a court with God and God gives him that court and God asks him some very serious questions God comes to him and says you know what it's time to man up and answer some of these questions where were you when I created the earth where were you when I created the heavens where were you when I did all of these great things I didn't need your counsel I didn't need your consultation I did this all alone To add another important dynamic to this line of logic in Paul's quotation is that God doesn't owe us anything. The possibility of salvation, the possibility of redemption with Him is in Him alone. That's the necessary, the summation at the end of all that. For Him, for from Him, And through him and to him are all things. Him, him, him. 
Not one time is it about you, you, you. He didn't need us to come up with this plan. He didn't need us to deliver this plan. This was all based upon His mercy and His grace and His willingness to save a creation that had rejected Him. Not because of us. God is the source and the means by which all of these things are accomplished. And as we close today, what about Roman or what about Israel? We've answered that question. You and I are a part of spiritual Israel. Christ is the one that supplies the root. Have you taken the opportunity to be grafted in to that tree, to that olive tree? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to also the Greek. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power that saves. He later says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? There's a time that you have to repent. And there will be a time that you no longer can repent. Don't take for granted this time that you've been given to repent. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Do we share the same faith as Abraham? As it said in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, Abraham believed it was counted unto him as for righteousness and the faith that he had. Do we have faith that all things are from Him, to Him, and through Him in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness and life. And Paul's referencing something that they had already done. Have you done that today? Have you crucified the old man and been resurrected to a newness of life? In Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is what it means to be grafted in to the olive tree. This is what we do to be grafted into the olive tree. This is what we do to become a part of spiritual Israel, and this is what we do to be supplied by the root Jesus Christ. If you have not done these things this morning, don't take for granted the grace that God has given you. We can help you with these. We have water ready for you if you need to be baptized. We can offer prayers for anybody that needs prayers and assistance and anything that they have in life. If you would find yourself in either of these categories, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected. Good.